In the lead-up to Remembrance Day this year, we thought it fitting to rebroadcast an interview that we did back in 2019 with World War II veteran Len McLeod. In an incredible twist of fate, a great part of Len's wartime service was spent serving in the US Army small ships, a perilous occupation for many Aussies. Many were little more than children when they went to sea, and not many people know their stories. It's time they were told. Len was 93 when he did this interview. He's still with us, living in Queensland with his family, and he's now the president of the US Army Small Ships Association, advocating strongly for recognition of their wartime service, and rightly so. Leonard Roy McLeod was born on the 2nd of June 1926, the youngest child of Ruby and John McLeod, a working-class family in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Len was barely four years old when his father died from the effects of gassing on the Western Front in France during World War I. Len grew up as a legacy child, and although times were tough, his mother managed to feed the family and make repayments on the war service loan for their home in Footscray. Len left school early to earn money to help family finances. He lied about his age and enlisted in the army three times at the age of 15, before finally being discovered and discharged. The fourth time he was more canny and succeeded. So it was off to jungle training for 16-year-old infantryman Len. His mum thought he was in the home guard or the cadets, however. Her darling son was soon on a train to Townsville and then on a troop ship to Port Moresby, New Guinea, and participation in World War II. And so his big adventure in life began, and he would eventually find himself serving on US Army small ships. We bring you part one of Len McLeod's wartime service story. My name's Len McLeod. I was with the United States warships. I travelled right through from New Guinea, right through to Tokyo with the United States warships. That was during World War Two, wasn't it, Len? That was during World War Two, yes. Okay, well, we're going to go along that voyage with you. If you don't mind, we're just going to take you back to your early times before you joined the Army. What was your family life like? Where did you live? I'll go back to very early in the piece. As a young fellow, barely five years old, my father passed away from the effects of gas from the First World War. And that left my mother and uh, I had a sister and a brother and myself. I was the youngest. Now, this is going back. I now jump from about five years of age till I was just around about the 15 mark. I'd left school in North Footscray and the war had started... The war had been on in 1939, but we're now in 1943 when the Japanese were approaching Australia. Singapore had fallen. Things were very, very bad here in Australia. It looked like at one stage 
the Japanese would land somewhere on the mainland of Australia. Things were very, very uh, frightening for the population. The army was calling up all the young fellows over the age of 18 for home defence or they could volunteer for the AIF, the overseas services. This was when I was growing up, and all around me they were going into the army until finally I was left about 15, 15 and a half. But I was six foot tall. The young fellows were saying to me, I might as well go down and join. We're going to be called up, blah, blah, blah. So I went along with them <laughs> to the recruiting office in Footscray, and I got thrown out the first time. He said, how old are you? I said, 21 years of age. He said, well, get home and get your birth certificate and bring it back in a very nasty way. So I left it for a while. I left it for several weeks and went back, and they accepted me. Only my mother rang up shortly after I joined the first horses, and they had me discharged. But you'd already been in the army for a little while at that stage and gone off to do your training, yes. hadn't you? Yes. I'd been in the army for a little while when they found out. I left it then for quite some time, when I say sometimes six or eight weeks, and I went back again. And this time they asked me how old I was. You've got to bear in mind that things were very, very bad, you know. I think by then Darwin had been bombed, Broome had been bombed. Things were very, very frightening. So I felt, well, it's my duty too, like everyone else, if presumably possible, to get in the army. So I finally got in. I think I told them my age was 22 or something. They didn't query it. As I stood in my socks, I was six foot tall. They said to me, put your hands above your head, hold your hands out. The next thing I know, I'm in the army and on a train up to Brisbane, from Melbourne to Brisbane in the troop train. They give me a, a uniform. But before I left, I went home and I told them I'd only joined the home defence. The only difference between the home defence and the AIF was your Australia on your collar of your uniform. So I took the Australia badges off and I come home and I'll tell my mother I'm only in the home defence. And she accepted that, you know, that I wouldn't be out of Australia. And she was quite happy about that. But the next thing, I'm on the, the trip train going to Brisbane. I was the first intake into Canungra Army Barracks. They just opened the gates in the Canungra Army Barracks. And they give us about 10 or 14 days training usually about uh, a month or six weeks. But because it was the first lot and they needed us north, because the Japanese by now looked like taking New Guinea, come down to within about 20 kilometres north of Port Moresby. I ended up in a 
troop train to Townsville. From Townsville, they put us on a ship, about 800 or 900 of us, on a ship to uh, Port Moresby. A couple of days later, we arrived in Port Moresby, and they took us to a place, I think it's still there, Murray Barracks, a big army camp there. That very night, the Japanese bombed the airports around Port Moresby within about two or three kilometres from us. So that was an introduction that I had the first night. They hit the uh, Air Force bases, done a lot of damage. And the very next morning, we're on parade, and they're calling for volunteers for this and volunteers for that. They come to me, and uh, they wanted volunteers for an airdropping corps to drop supplies out of the planes. They wanted 18 personnel. So I stepped forward for the first six or eight weeks, about two months, I dropped supplies all over New Guinea because the soldiers were gradually pushing the Japanese back a little bit further. They were unable to carry their food, the water and the ammunition and everything. So they realised they needed an air-dropping corps. They just got nine Dakotas or C-47 aeroplanes. The very next morning, they wake me up at daybreak and we're allotted two to an aeroplane. Nine planes are going to take off and drop supplies here and there in different places around New Guinea. I'd done that for quite some time until we lost one. Accidentally, we lost one of our planes and two of my friends went down in it. Well, I kept on going for a few more weeks. And then I said to the officer, I said, I think you better send me back to the infantry. And next morning, he said, that's easy done. He said, we'll transfer you. I said, well, there's a 7th Battalion, 2nd 7th Battalion, had been transferred back from the Middle East quickly. And I said, well, you can put me in there as a, a reinforcement to them if there's a position. So the next morning, they fly me into a place called Wow in central New Guinea, right in the heart of New Guinea. And I go in there as a, a reinforcement with them. They looked at me. These are real crack Australian troops been fighting in the Middle East. They were rushed back. They were the only ones that England would allow to come back, the 5th, 6th and 7th Battalion or the 17th Brigade, I ended up with them all over central New Guinea. And we come right across New Guinea to a place overlooking, uh, I'll think of it in a minute, on the north coast of New Guinea. We couldn't attack that because it was too strong. Is that Buna? Buna, yeah. Oro Bay and Buna. And we stood up in the mountains there looking down right down, several miles down, and we could see what was going on. We were reporting in by radio what was going on. This went on for quite some weeks until I woke up one morning and I've got a tremendous temperature 
shall I send for the first aid chap in our section? And he took me temperature and he said, oh, Christ, he said, you're going to get back to well. He said, we can't give you any assistance. Do you think you can walk? Well, it took me about two and a half days walking on my own to get back to well. They put me in hospital in well. I had uh, dengue fever and this tropical dysentery and something, I forget what it was. In the hospitals there, they were too full. They sent me to Moresby. And they said, oh, we'll send you back to the mainland. We'll get you back to the mainland. You'll pick up pretty quick. Eventually, I come back and back to Victoria, 14 days leave or something. But in the course of the time, I accidentally get shot in Marlon. We go out with a, a soldier, one of the other chaps, which was on leave from Western Australia. And we go out and shoot a few rabbits. And I get a full blast of the shotgun in my hip. That sort of finished me. I didn't think I'd ever sort of walk again. But in the course of a short period of time, I pick up, by then I'm out of the army, discharged and out of the army. I'm thinking, I was always physically fit and I was going to be the man that broke the four-minute mile because everyone was trying to break a four-minute mile. And being tall and athletic, I had that in mind, so I was always fit and athletic. And I picked up for it pretty good and I could walk around. And a young fellow said to me, he said, do you want a job on a ship? I was thinking about what am I going to do now? Do I go back to school or down to the Footscray uh, Technical School? My brother was a, a molder and they wouldn't take him in the army. They cancelled him out because he was a molder and he was making uh, bombs, moulding hand grenade bombs in Metis KFB factory in Footscray in the foundry. So he was on reserved occupation. They wouldn't take him. Getting back to talking to this young fella, he said, well, I'm getting off this old tub on. And he says, going to Newcastle in a couple of days. It's unloading coal in North Melbourne. And I said, oh, yeah, he said, if you want the job, come down with me and we'll speak to the captain. So I walked along with him all the way down, <laughs> about three or four miles down the road. We get on this old ship, and it's a Yugoslav ship that left Yugoslavia. It was at sea when the Germans invaded Yugoslavia, and it comes to Australia. If it goes back there, the Germans take it over. But it comes to Australia here, and the BHP given the contract to cart coal, it was about 8,500 tonne garden coal from Newcastle to Melbourne and then back to Newcastle and so on. And I seen the, the captain, which was a Yugoslav, could hardly talk a word of English. <laughs> and he said, oh, oh, it's all right, yeah, okay. So I took the young fellow's job. I ended up as a trimmer on the ship. Well, I didn't know what a trimmer was, but I soon found out that was the job to get the coal from the bunkers 
down the chute, down into the fire, into the engine room. Dirty, black job. We sailed it, unloaded. We sailed back to Newcastle. And as we were going into Newcastle, the Finden, I think it was, the name of the ship was coming out. It was moving out. We were moving in. It was going north, and we'd just come from the south. It only got to about 10 hours up the road when it was sunk by this, the biggest Japanese submarine which had a little aeroplane on a stick in a, a hangar, an airtight hangar, and they could fold the wings up and put it back. It must have seen both of us. Would have thought it was a, a better a target than us, and it followed it a bit further up the coast and sunk it. I ended up with some of the crew members later on of that. That's how I can tell you the story. We went in, filled up with uh, coal and back to Melbourne a few times. Until another thing happened to me. I was talking to one of some of these sailors, merchant seamen, when we were loading up. And he said, what are you doing on a dirty old thing like this? He said, the Americans, American small ships want uh, experienced seamen. He said, no, no, no. He said, your rate of pay is a lot better than it is what you're getting here. And I said, well, where do I join? He said, well, you'll have to catch the train. Unfortunately, you've got to go to Sydney. So I get on the train. It's about an hour, something like that, to run from Newcastle down to Sydney. I knew I had time before the ship sailed to get back. And I go into the uh, the Grace Hotel in Sydney. I don't know whether you know it, but it's a beautiful big hotel in Sydney. And MacArthur had just shifted from Melbourne up to uh, take over the Grace Hotel in Sydney as an American base there. I go into this Grace Hotel and they send me to a, a separate room with the American small ship section was. And I walk in and I see the fellow behind the desk. And I said, I believe you're looking for some merchant seamen. He said, we want experienced merchant seamen. He said, have you got any experience? And I said, yes, I said. And he said, well, here, there's an application form. Fill it in. And, <laughs> and uh, on it, it says, fill in the name the last three ships you've been on. Well, I'd only been on that ship for about eight weeks to nine weeks. <laughs> but I knew the names of other ships in the harbour. So I put the first two ships that I wasn't on, I said I'd been on that one for nine months, that one for seven months. And at present, employed on the uh, Olga Topic was the name of the ship, the Yugoslav ship. Present employed on the Olga Topic as a fireman. So he said, well, uh, I'll be back in about 10 minutes before the quarter of an hour. He must have gone out to check up to ring up to see whether I was on the ship or not. He come back and he said, oh, that's all right. Yes, he said, uh, as far as we're concerned, you're right. Uh, he said, when can you go? I said, when do you want me to leave? He said, can you leave tomorrow? <laughs> I never ever went back onto that ship. That next day, I'm leaving Newcastle 
back to Townsville to join a ship back to Port Moresby, where I had been with the Australian Army. <laughs> but now I'm on the United States small ships. They sent me to Millen Bay. By then, Millen Bay had been captured and occupied by the Australian and American troops. And there was an old ship just come in by the name of the Bobble, B-O-P-P-L-E. It was an old ship, carry about 80 or 90 tonne, 50 or 60 feet long, built in about 1922, which they'd taken over on the Australian coast here somewhere. So they put me on there as a fireman. Now, on the Olga topic, we had two firemen and nine fires, three boilers. But on this, the bubble ship, it was only a small ship. It had only uh, one boiler and two fires. I soon learned how to operate it because when I was on the ship, the firemen showed me how to fire a coal-burning ship. So that was a start. I went onto the bubble. I had no trouble. I could fire it. I knew how to slice a fire, how to stack a fire up, how to increase the airflow and all that, which was required. I stayed on the bottle all around New Guinea. From uh, Millen Bay, we went right around to Buna, which I had looked down on the mountains previously, to Waro Bay, Buna, and right along the coast, we travelled upwards and back, carting stuff that needed to be shifted in the way of defence equipment. We'd done various trips up and down and back. As the war went further north and places were captured like Lai and all those, we eventually came alongside the wharf in Vinchhaven. Next, I go ashore, walk around for a while, come back to the ship. And there's a beautiful ship that moved in next to us. Beautiful looking ship, green, about 300 feet long, about eight and a half, nine thousand tonner. Beautiful looking. It was all green. I thought that's very strange and very clean looking. I admired it. Only when I'd come back on the ship in a matter of a few hours, the captain of the bubble called me up, up to the deck and he said, as a matter of fact, when he said, uh, word just come through, he said, they're going to transfer you off this, and I want you to go on the Armand Concordia. In 1917, the United States finally entered World War I, and steel became scarce, while the demand for ships went up. The U.S. government instigated a study into the feasibility of concrete ships. With the advent of World War II, steel was in short supply again, and demand for ships increasing. In 1942, the U.S. government contracted McCloskey & Company of Philadelphia to construct a new fleet of 24 concrete ships. Construction began in July 1943, and the SS Armand Considia was officially launched in May 1944, Len McLeod served on this store ship. Let's return to Len's story. So I said, the one next door. And he said, yeah, the one next door. When we just come in. So I go over there and I 
see the captain on the ship, and he says, go down to the engine room and meet Harry down down the engine room. He'll show you around. So I went down the engine room, and I was lost. I was totally lost. There's a beautiful modern ship, and it's an oil burner. No fires, no coal, everything was nice and clean. And the fireman said to me, he said, oh, you're my replacement, are you? He said, I'm getting off this. He said, I'm getting back to America. I think he knew what was ahead. He was about two years older than me. A nice young, fit-looking young American fella. And I said, but you've got troubles, mate. He said, what do you mean I've got troubles? He said, you might have troubles on this. And we had a bit of a laugh there for a while. And I said, why? He knew all about this ship, see. I'll tell you all about that in a few minutes. Anyhow, I said to him, I said, you've got troubles. I said, what? I said, I've never fired a, a ship like this in my life. I said, I don't know the first thing about it. He said, I'll be with you for a couple of watches. And he said, by the time you've done two watches, you'll know as much about it as I do. <laughs> he was that quick to get off the ship. So he stayed with me. He'd done his own shift, and then he'd come back and done four hours with me. It was four hours on and eight hours off, you know. We come back, we'd done two shifts, show me all the valves, how to operate them, how to put in the atomizer tips, how to increase the air or reduce the air, and so on. After two ships, I was pretty confident. But the ship wasn't going anywhere very fast. After a while, I became very efficient with it. We had 10 or 12 army personnel on the ship. And I started to find out why he wanted to get off the ship. I'll put it this way. It was like a, a floating warehouse. We had everything that was required for the Army, Navy, or the Air Force. If they wanted spare parts of this or they wanted additional of anything, it was almost certainly on the ship. It was fitted out like a Bunnings warehouse. I found out later on it was all full of bins, bins of this and bins of that, big bins, little bins. And even on the bottom of the ship, we had tank tracks. Not that they used very many tanks in the Pacific, but if they needed a tank track, we could have given them a tank track. We could have given them anything. Soldiers on the ship, they were storming, and they would get it ready and either get it onto a smaller ship to transfer it or take it to the pier and unload it on the pier for Air Force personnel or something like that, or if they needed any munitions, it was all there. Without a doubt, we would have been the number one prize in the Pacific Ocean as far as the Japanese were concerned. And that's why it was painted green. And when we went under steam, we were told to get in as close as we could to the islands. And in some places, we were that close to the jungle or coconut palms, we could almost hit them with a stone. 
the only thing I'd done was drive the ship out three, four, five, six hundred yards and anchor. If they wanted to unload anything, we'd go back to the pier and anchor in under the trees. Every day or every second day, Japanese planes would come over us and they'd attack other ships out further. We could see it going on all around us, but we were hiding, hiding as much as we could. Probably didn't think we were a very good target anyhow, or they were too interested in seeing ships anchored out. That was a start until finally the captain called up. He'd been ashore for several hours. He'd come ashore and he called me up and he said, Lenny, so I'll ask you a few questions. And he said, do you think this tub can maintain nine knots or ten knots, something like that? And I said, well, look, Captain, I said, I've only fired the ship out for half a kilometre out and back a few times. I said, I've never fired it over any length of distance. So it's a bit hard to say. But what I'll tell you, I'll redline the engine, the, uh, the boilers. I'll redline the boilers. We'll do what we can. I said, we'll try our bloody best. He said, thanks you very much. He said, that's what I told them at the conference. They thanked me very much for doing that. There's number two ship on a row on the starboard side of this convoy. And I said, how many is going to be in the convoy, Captain? Well, he said, they told me there's going to be 104 of us. But he said, I think there's a few more latecomers coming, so could be more. So the next morning, we start lining up in a line. There was several rows. I don't know, they might have been 10 deep, 10 in a row, right out, rows after rows. And in about a half a kilometre apart, the rows, and about a half a kilometre between each ship, you couldn't see it all, even if you got up on the highest part of the deck. You would see the destroyers and the destroyer escorts going up and down various files and naval ships around us. And I felt real good. I felt real confident to see those bloody naval ships all around me, you know, flying up terrific speed. We're only getting along at eight or nine knots. And they're going up and down those aisles about 30 knots, you know. What I didn't know is every four hours or three hours, the whole convoy, could you picture 104 ships, would turn so many degrees to the starboard and stay that way for an hour or two hours, maybe longer, and then this, the, all these destroyers and escorts would all sound their sirens and then we would turn maybe straight ahead or turn to the port side so many degrees. We zigzagged as that convoy went north. Now, I said to the captain, I went up there, and I said, listen, captain, where are we going to? Are we going straight into bloody Tokyo or what? <laughs> and he liked me talking like that because the Americans wouldn't talk to their own captain like that. And I got on very well with him, and he liked me, and I liked him. 
He said, to be honest, he said, I don't know where we're going. He said, all they told me is that we're going north. After all the ships, the big convoy zigzagged all the way, we ended up we're heading to a place called the Lighty, the big battle of the Lighty. Oh, goodness gracious, it was terrible. But what happened with us, every time we turned to the uh, starboard side, and then we had to go to the port side, we needed a few more revolutions on our engine, which meant we needed a bit more steam. And I couldn't give them any more because we were redlining the boilers, and the boilers would blow off the steam, and we'd lose about a half a ton of water. And every time we overloaded the boilers, like the safety factor would come in, we dropped back one ship. But the funny part about it, the next ship, number three ship, we were number two, number three ship come up and took our place, and they're yelling out to us, they were close enough, only about 75, 80 yards, 100 yards away. Get out of the bloody way and let us get into your place. They took our place. We dropped back number three. Now, at four o'clock or three o'clock in the morning, I might have been asleep. We dropped back to fourth. And then in the morning, we dropped back fifth, sixth, until after the second morning, I think it was the second morning, I get up on deck to have a look what the weather looked like because we're living down below deck and I'm working down below deck. <laughs> So I get up on the deck and I look around. I can't see anything. On my right side, I wouldn't see anything unless there was a naval ship there. But I go up on the deck, further deck up, and I couldn't see anything on the port side. couldn't see a ship anywhere. So I go right up on the bridge, up on the top, and I look, and there's not a bloody ship to be seen. World War II veteran Len McLeod is talking about his experiences during World War II aboard the concrete American ship SS Armand Considere. 104 or 105 ships there are all gone. Naval ships, everything, and we're on the own. And if you think that I felt lonely, you've got no idea. We're on our own and we're number one priority for the Japanese they'd have realised it, you know. We're plodding along, heading up. The captain must have known where we were going because we kept on going anyhow. And we ended up, we got into the into Lady just as the battle was finished, just about finished. That was the end of the Japanese Air Force, just about all destroyed. Terrible. The big naval battle was going on. 10 or 15 mile up the road, we could hear a lot of the explosions as we come in, limped in. That was a naval battle. The Air Force battle was still going on around us, you know. A lot of ships were destroyed and everything. But when we hobbled in, nothing worried us. They were too busy with other things on their mind. What happened 24 hours ago? After several weeks, two or three or four weeks, we lined up, a hell of a lot of us lined up in a smaller convoy, and we 
went into Manila, down the Pasig River. I went ashore in Manila, and that was destroyed unbelievably. Everything destroyed. Banks blown to pieces. Currency blown along the whole Japanese occupation money. Blown around. I picked a lot of it up. And unfortunately, I was just in the course of shifting one thing and another. It got thrown away. Or my daughter-in-law may have it. I don't know. But anyhow, I've seen all that. And uh, we were amongst the first into Manila. Once they consolidated, the Japanese had to evacuate back to Okinawa. After we formed up into another convoy, and we went into Okinawa, another bloody big battle in Okinawa. I was in Okinawa when they dropped the two atomic bombs. And the captain called me up and he said, we'll be going home in a few days, then. I said, why is that? He said, they dropped an A-bomb, he said, in Japan. What I've bloody seen going over us, massive formations, bombers going over us, heading towards Japan. I said, I think they've dropped more than a bloody bomb on Japan. He said, it was two A-bombs. A I said, what in the hell is an A-bomb? He said, oh, it's some sort of an atom bomb, he said. He said, I don't know much about it. He said, I just heard it on our radio this morning. It's killed a lot of people. He said, 50 or 60,000 people each bomb's killed. He said, that's for one bomb. And I said, Christ, that sounds right. He said, the war will be over shortly now. He looked like that and home in one piece. I said, well, I hope so. Well, anyhow, it's only a matter of two or three weeks. And the word come through that here or here pursuing for peace. And we sailed straight into, with the big Missouri, we went along with the Missouri, I suppose, because if Missouri wanted anything, we had it. And we anchored next to the Missouri, about three to 500 yards from the Missouri. I've got pictures of it here. I was anchored alongside it, or near enough to it. But within four or five hundred yards of the dock in Yokohama. From Okinawa, we went into Yokohama, which I knew wasn't very far. It looked like a half hour, an hour. But I could see the Japanese in a peaceful manner. I didn't see any army. I seen men, women and kiddies coming down looking at the ship, looking at Missouri, and looking at probably our ship. After a few days, we weren't allowed ashore. No one was allowed ashore until the peace treaty was signed. And we had to wait until General uh, MacArthur and uh, all the others, they had to wait for the uh, Canadian, the American, the Russian, the uh, Chinese, the English, and uh, the French. There's eight. got a copy of the official surrender here. My daughter's got it now of the official surrender signed by all these people including our uh, general. He wasn't very well liked that our general. I'll think of his name. Uh, Blamey. General Blamey. That was him. 
they had to wait for him to come up to put his name on the signature. And then they were going to let us go ashore. But after a few days, we still had to wait because in those days, planes weren't as fast as they are now. And it took days. It took five or six days. But I said to one of the crew members, one of the ordinary seamen that I got on well, that I should lower that uh, motorboat down. They used to call it a Penyan. I said, lower that down and drive us ashore for a couple of hours, will you? He said, yeah, I'll do that. I said, no, not now. I said, after dinner. I said, I don't, I've got eight hours off after lunchtime. I said, and uh, I'll have a bit of a walk around. So after dinner, he came to me. He said, you want to go ashore now? I said, yeah. He said, I've lowered, already lowered the boat down, like a nice little motorboat. And I said, all right. So I jump in it, and he runs me ashore four or five hundred yards. I walk ashore around Yokohama, walked around. I sat right next door where I walked ashore. I didn't go far away from the docks and that. I see a station, very similar to our station here in uh, Brisbane here. I look around and I couldn't see anyone. Not one Japanese man, woman or child would look at me. They'd turn away. They didn't cause me any trouble, didn't come near me, but wouldn't look at me. If I turned around, they were looking at me, and they'd turn away. I seen a, a tall fellow, a bit tall as I was, and or maybe taller, and I said to him, excuse me, could you tell me which train I would catch to go to Tokyo? I knew it wasn't very far down. He didn't understand one word I said. He could have been uh, Hungarian, Polish, he could have been any one of a hundred nationalities. So I waited for another big tall fella, European looking, to come along. And I'm not telling you a lie, I pulled up about 10 or 12 before I got one, and he said, what do you want? And I said, I want to go to Tokyo. I said, can you tell me which platform that I've got to go to to catch it because it's all in Japanese. He said, oh, you go down that platform. He said, catch the train. The train go that way and point it that way. So I down I go. I sit down and wait for 10 minutes, quarter an hour. Long on the train. I get on the train and I'm sitting with men, women and kids all in civilian clothes. There wasn't any army. I'm in practically civilian clothes. I might have an army shirt and a pair of jeans or something. That would be very careful when I was getting off because we had a lot of stops. But I worked it out that that had to be Tokyo, so I got off. It was Tokyo. I walk around the same thing in Tokyo. Not one person would look at me. Not one person would say a word to me. They didn't come near me, didn't touch me or hurt me in any way, but wouldn't look at me. If I turned around, I'd look the other way. I couldn't walk very far around Tokyo because I didn't want to lose track of where I was and find my way back to the station. I would have been there an hour, hour and a half, walking around looking at shops and one thing and another. But not one word was said. I wandered back to that very station 
I knew the right station, where to go. Waited for a train to go in, got on. Finally got back to the pier, waved out to the ship. The young fellow was looking for me. I told him to roughly about what time. Come down, pick me up. I get back to the ship. As I go back to the ship, the little boat going back to the ship, the skipper must have been on deck or up on the bridge and spotted me. So when I got on, on the boat, the armad concertier got word sent down, the captain wants to see you. He called me up and he said, where have you been? I said, oh, I, said, I was just going to walk around uh, over on the coast. And he said, you got back, they didn't put a knife in you and didn't hurt you anyway? I said, they didn't even look at me. Didn't even speak to me, didn't want to know me. I said, if I looked at them, I looked away. And he said, well, he said, that's good, you know. I didn't tell him for a while. And then after a while, I thought, oh, well, I'll tell him. I said, oh, I should have oh, caught a train. I took a quick trip into Tokyo on the train and back. And that's when he looked at me. Oh, he said, you better not say anything. I should have to report you in at the head office over that. He said, they'd almost court-martial you for that. He said, we were told not to let anyone go ashore until they surrender someone. He said, that won't be for another couple of days at least before they all get here. And I said, oh, and I said, don't worry about it. I said, I won't tell anyone mm-hmm. if you don't. <laughs> and he, he let me go. He said, but oh, he said, don't go ashore again. I said, I've no intention to. I've been ashore. So that's how it started. But then after it was signed, after a matter of three or four or five days, the treaty was signed. The Japanese surrender ceremony aboard the deck of the USS Missouri lasted 23 minutes and was broadcast throughout the world. The Japanese copy of the treaty varied from the Allied. The Allied copy of the treaty was presented in leather and gold lining with country's seals printed on the front, whereas the Japanese copy was bound in rough canvas with no seals on the front. I can show you the picture of them all coming down, coming ashore, coming onto the Missouri to sign it. All the top brass. We could see them going and onto the Missouri to sign. After a while, the skipper called me up and he said, you're eligible for repatriation. Words come through to repatriate you. He said, but we would like you to stay on the ship because the ship was going to be handed over to UNRWA and it's going to China. I said, well, for the start, so what do you mean UNRWA? He said, that's United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation. UNRWA, or the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, was an international relief agency, largely dominated by the United States, but representing 44 nations. It was founded in 1943 and became part of the UN in 1945. Its purpose was to plan, coordinate, administer or arrange for the administration of measures for the relief of victims of war in any area under the control of any of the United Nations through the provision of food, fuel, 
clothing, shelter and other basic necessities, or medical and other essential services. The Armand Considere, on which Len MacLeod was serving, was of course a supply ship. It's been handed over to the United Nations and they will sign you up. I don't think they could have found another fireman to take me place or it was going to be very hard. And he said, well, you stay with us. Come to Shanghai. Think about it for a while. Or he said, you can pack your bag and get ready to leave. And I'll fly out to Manila and back to Australia. He said, that's the only way we can get you back by Manila. I thought about it for a while. And I thought, oh, well, while the war's over, everything's all right. I'll go. So I stayed with the ship. We pack up. We go into uh, China. 